Hello, and welcome to Extra Grim, the show within a show where we delve a little deeper into the world of the Brothers Grimm. In this episode, we talk to Harvard professor Maria Tatar about her new book on Snow White, and also discuss the Brothers Grimm and fairy tales in general. So, pop another log on the fire, sit back, relax, and enjoy. Hello. Hello. How you doing? Hi there. I'm good, Adam. How are you? I'm great. <laughs> what have you got today, then? What have I got today? Well, I've got something extra special. We've got something extra special. An interview with Brothers Grimm expert Maria Tatar. It feels like a, an exciting new step for the podcast, something we've never tried before. Full disclosure, we have just finished the interview, yeah. and I think it's fair to say it went fairly well. I would say so too. Technologically, things went fairly smoothly. Adam did drop out towards the end of the interview. <laughs> so there's probably a good 10 minutes of solo interview. <laughs> so I look forward to hear, uh, finding out what was said later. That would be great. A little <laughs> yes. treat for me. I thought, Adam, Adam's not moving. <laughs> the screen I just sit very frozen. still with a strange expression on my face. Looking very zen over there. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, as I say, um, we interview a Harvard professor, Maria Tatar, whose expertise lies in children's literature, German literature, and folklore. She's the author of several books on folklore, fairy tales, and the Brothers Grimm, including The Hard Facts of the Grimm's Fairy Tales, which I read beforehand. Um, I just finished it just before lockdown, which prompted me to get in touch and try and arrange an interview. Yeah, She's written loads of other books, including uh, Off With Their Heads, Secrets Beyond the Door, and she's the editor of the Annotated Brothers Grimm, the Annotated Hans Christian Andersen, and many other books. Her latest book is The Fairest of Them All, Snow White and 21 Tales About Mothers and Daughters, which was released in April 2020. So she knows her stuff, and we thought it would be great to talk to an actual expert on the Brothers Grimm. Um, we covered a lot of ground. Uh, we did. What did we, what did we talk about? We touched on sexism. We touched on yes. familial relationships. Disney, which was quite interesting. Yeah, that was great. It was very interesting to hear what she had to say on Disney, um, some of which was quite surprising, I think. Uh, we also talked about Brothers Grimm in general, fairy tales in general, I even asked her about hands in luck at one point. Oh yeah, we got specific. And oh, Adam, you asked her about um, you asked her about monogenesis and polygenesis. Which, just to clarify, what's the concept behind those? So the the concept behind monogenesis and polygenesis is this idea that there are fairy tales from all around the world that follow very similar tropes, and whether there is a single origin of that particular kind of story that's spread across the world or if they have independently sprung up across the world in a sense that there's this sort of universal human existence and those kinds of stories would always be created no matter where you are in the world so it's it's those competing ideas and uh, she gave her take on that that was very interesting and we started the interview asking maria to introduce herself and what got her interested in fairy tales in the first place let's hear the interview Enjoy.
I'm Maria Tatar, and I'm a professor of folklore and mythology and Germanic languages and literatures at Harvard University. And I have been studying folklore and fairy tales since about age five, when I found a book in our attic. It was in German, and I didn't read German, but uh, it was a book that my sister read to me in English. Uh, She made up the stories as she went along. Well, I mean, really, our first question, that kind of answers our first question is what first piqued your interest in fairy tales? Well, it began with this book in Mm -hmm. the attic of a very old house that we lived in, the mysterious book written in Gothic script, Mm -hmm. Uh, could not decipher it. It had beautiful illustrations. And those illustrations were the point of departure for my sister's stories about Little Red Riding Hood, Snow White, Sleeping Beauty. And then I went to graduate school and discovered that you were not allowed to write about the Grimm's fairy tales, or they were not on our 20-page reading list. So I put aside childish things for a while. And then many years later, when I had children, I started reading the stories and had the shock uh, that that these are not at all stories for children. They were full of sex and violence, grisly events, the worst case imaginable scenarios. And as importantly, they were thought experiments. They really made you think more and think harder about families, about the human condition, about all the terrible things that can happen in the world. One of our questions, I think, our first questions we were wondering is, why the Brothers Grimm? Like, what, what do you think it is about them that makes their stories special, or, or are they perhaps not? Uh, why are they so famous? It, it's uh, absolutely extraordinary. I always think about how the Grimm's had the perfect last name. That <laughs> is, uh, think of Charles Perrault in France, or Straparola, or Basile in, in Italian. They, told, they recorded wonderful stories, very much like the Grimm's, Uh, But they did not go sort of mainstream. They certainly did not go global the way that the Grimm's tales did. I think what the Grimm's did, they not only had the perfect last name, but then they also knew how to develop a sort of compact fairy tale style. That is, the stories didn't go on too long. And if you look at the way these stories are told in the oral tradition, if you look at the way that folklorists record them word for word, you see that they just go on and on. And they're, they're sort of, you know, you're, as a reader, you say, when is this going to end? Uh, but the Grimm's mastered this, uh, this style, which worked both for children and for adults. And over the years, they toned down some of the, well, certainly the vulgarity in the stories. The, they removed some of the allusions to pregnancies, for example. I love the fact there's one character named Hans Dom who can get women pregnant just by looking at them. And that story sort of was, was removed before too long. Interestingly, though, they also often escalated the violence, in part because they wanted to show that evil will be punished. And, of course, the classic lesson of the fairy tale is that virtue is rewarded and vice is, is punished. So they were very skillful. Both the Grimm's are very skillful in finding a way to make these stories accessible to a broader public and, as I said, to a a multi-generational audience. 
And do you think it perhaps tapped into something at that particular time in the 19th century as well? This is the age at which grown-ups are discovering the value of imagination. It took a while, but if you look at children's stories, say from the 17th and 18th centuries, they're all about behavioral allegories or they're all about uh, cautionary tales. If you play with fire, uh, if you light matches, you will go up in flames and perish. In the 19th century, what you have is a beginning of a new view about the value of imagination, also about curiosity, that curiosity might be something that can prove useful to a child, particularly a child who is entering the educational institutions that begin to develop in the 19th and onward into the 20th centuries. It's funny, yeah, it's funny you mentioned Basilei. We always love coming across Basilei. Oh, it's always a treat, yeah. <laughs> and they're always so long, but I kind of try and get a little snippet. It's so, you know, and they're so clearly written for adults. Um, and they tell us a lot about his time and place, but they're not as user-friendly as the Grimm's are. Mm -hmm. do, do you think there's an element that's, uh, it's, it's false to think of them as children's stories, especially, I'd say, you know, oral coming from the oral folk tradition. They were stories for everyone in a way. And they've kind of been shoehorned by these writers into kids' stories. Or Absolutely, they yes. They, they migrated into children's literature, into the, the culture of childhood, from the childhood of culture into the culture of childhood. But then it's odd because think of Walt Disney, who decides to make fairy tale films, cartoons. So they're packaged for children. And yet, if you look at Disney advertising, it's always about for the young at heart, uh, for children from 8 to 80. And Disney, I think, somehow instinctively recognized that although he was creating a story for children, it was something that would really appeal to parents, to grandparents, to everyone out there. So I think he was very shrewd about going the fairy tale route. Your new book's about Snow White, and that was the first uh, big Disney film. And I saw a quote from Disney. Uh, he said, I just tried to make a good picture. Then the professors come along and tell us what to do. Do you think Disney kind of warped and, or, or ruined or it didn't have a good influence on fairy tales? Or do you think it's an interesting part of the development of them? Well, I think there's an upside. Uh, in one way, you, you could argue that he sort of preserved fairy tales. You know, we all know these stories because of, of Disney. He also, you know, brought together these wonderful teams of animators and story teams. You know, we talk about the Disney film, but in fact, these were extraordinary collaborations with, uh, you know, some of the artists were recruited, they were emigres from Germany. And they were all men, uh, men who had a very deep understanding of fairy tales and the story of, of Snow White. On the other hand, of course, if you think of fairy tales, they're bottom up. They're stories that are told in communal settings. And then there's the Disney corporate fairy tale. The one version, the definitive version, the sacred story. My students come in and they say, oh, my God, I thought Disney made up this story. I had no idea that it had been told before uh, by peasants, by representatives of many different laboring classes. 
So you have the top-down global narrative, which I think Jack Sipes refers to it as a stranglehold. Uh, the fairy tale then can't really change. It can't morph into something new. And if you look at the live-action versions that Disney has started making of late, you discover that you know it's basically the same old story with very little variation. But there's a way in which I think, you know, we can take the Disney script. And of course, you find this in fan fiction all the time and in Internet rewrites of the story. You know, we make it our own. So one one of the things we've talked about often on the podcast is the debate over monogenesis versus polygenesis. So we just wondered where you sit on that question or do you think it's a false dichotomy? That's a great question because... If you subscribe to the notion of polygenesis, you're also sort of giving in to the idea that there are timeless universals, that somehow all over the world, people have exactly the same ideas. It's, you know, the human condition and all of that. I've only recently come to the view that after going from the German canon and the European canon to try to think in global terms and looking at what is going on all over the world, even if I don't necessarily know the language and the culture, you see that there's a version of the juniper tree that is told in the Deep South. How did that story get there? There's a Snow White, it's not called Snow White, it's called The Beautiful Girl, that is told in Africa. Of course, the Cinderella story, famously, the first written version, comes from China. It doesn't look like our Cinderella, uh, but there are Cinderella tropes in it, and it's close enough. So you begin to see that there is a basic core to all of these stories. For example, with Snow White, it's mother-daughter conflict, something we don't really like to talk. I mean, we like to think mothers are sweet and wonderful. You have this deep love for your daughter. There's nothing, nothing toxic in that relationship at all. Of course, we know there is, but we shy away from talking about it. And suddenly there's this symbolic story that allows us to think about how complicated and vexed that relationship can be. So in my book on Snow White, I discovered that the, these stories were told all over the world. And if you go to Samoa, there's a Snow White story. Only in this case, it's Snow White, it turns out, is albino. And she has brown sisters. Uh, and if you go to other parts of the world, you discover that skin color actually isn't very important in most. It was only Disney who made it skin white as snow. The Grimms had it white as snow. So there are these basic conflicts, paradoxes, contradictions that I think we all have a deep need to talk through. The contradictions and paradoxes that we'll never be able to resolve. But as we talk about them, we create our values. Now, on the other hand, the theory of monogenesis, that there was a tale, a Cinderella tale in China, which then migrated all over the world and was culturally inflected in different ways, is persuasive. But I'm beginning to think that it's a little bit of a hybrid. I don't now take the monogenesis theory as seriously as I, I once did. And polygenesis has a certain appeal to me now as well. Yeah, so you uh, you mentioned there your new book, The Fairest of Them All, Snow White and Twenty One Tales of Mothers and Daughters. We haven't we haven't come across Snow White yet. We haven't. That's not one of the stories we've done, unfortunately. So, and we kind of we don't go near them until they've been selected. But um, 
uh, yeah, I wondered what is the sort of bare bones of of Snow White, and what are some of the other um, what are your favorite versions of other ones that you found? Well, basically, Snow White. You know, I think you almost have to go back to the Trojan War. How does the Trojan War begin? An apple of discord, a beauty contest the golden apple has inscribed on it to the most beautiful, for the most beautiful. So this idea of a beauty contest, uh, that's the beginning of Snow White, the competition between, and it's really mother and daughter. So you have, um, you have the conflict between these two, the beauty contest, who is the fairest, and then the plot to assassinate the daughter, and then sheltering in place. Uh, I think of what we're doing today. I mean, Snow White basically <laughs> finds a place to be safe. She's not allowed to leave the house as the dwarves who go off to to work. And then the attempts, the assault attempts on uh, Snow White's life. And then finally, the punishment of the queen, the stepmother, the aunt, whatever female figure happens to be in the story. And those punishments are colossally brutal. I mean, they're... Uh, can I give away the Grimm's? Uh, maybe not. Oh, it's, <laughs> not. Sorry. Sorry, it's difficult. <laughs> She's torn to pieces by wild horses. Uh, that's not the Grimm's, uh, but terrible things uh, happen, happen yeah. to her. And it's interesting how fairy tales encapsulate these very naive notions of justice. Yeah, and they are brutal. I was just thinking about the juniper tree. I think you mentioned that earlier. That's wow, that's a kind of personal favourite. Yeah. Well, that one is, I mean, the intersection of beauty, death, uh, I would say maybe rebirth, transfiguration. And, you know, to me, that is really one of the most mysterious stories in the collection. You mentioned, actually, there's a, a version of that story told in the Deep South. I think Matt mentioned it in the episode when we talked about the ginger tree. I can't remember what it's called, but it sounds kind of fascinating. There are a number of versions of it that I came across, and they're really blood-curdling. I mean, it's true that the Grimm's were translated early on, and they had the good fortune of being illustrated by George Cruikshank, and and then quickly went to the United States, so that, you know, it's odd that German folklore became your folklore. Yeah. (laughs) <laughs> and it became our folklore as well. And now it has definitely, by Disney, gone global. Because, the, yeah, there are, I, I remember there was a, an English uh, juniper tree, I think called the Rosebush. And, of course, there are English uh, Snow White and, and Cinderella. But the German ones are the ones that, that yeah, that we know. <laughs> we don't know the English ones. It's kind of incredible. Yeah. It is that indigenous lore has sort of been, erased. You know, we need to bring some of this back. I'm always astonished by the fact that African-American lore, which was so popular in the U.S. in the early part of the 20th century, just did this vanishing act, you know, in part because the stories were told in the vernacular, they were associated with slavery and lack of education. So Blacks had really no interest in keeping these stories alive, save for someone like Toni Morrison, who brilliantly takes the tropes of those stories and incorporates them into her novels.
um, you know, you're talking about um, mothers and daughters earlier, and, and we've we've kind of tentatively tried to look into sexism in fairy tales. And I, I read in your um, in your book, The Hard Facts of the Brothers Grimm, you said that fairy tale heroines have no monopoly on victimization. So I wondered if you think the sexism label that's often attached to fairy tales is is unfair, or or there's more to the story, perhaps. That that's a great question. You know, they were written down at a time when women. What did they aspire to? They aspired to a good marriage. So good looks and knowing how to dress were supremely important. And of course, so many of these stories begin with the victimization of the young. There are plenty of boys who are also thrown out of the house. I mean, the Grimm's have so many stories about dumbling, stupid, and, you know, what what a terrible insult. Uh, if you think about a child reading these stories, I mean, I think, yes, you know, there's so many moments in these stories that are sexist, that make them inappropriate for reading to the young. But that's precisely why we need to change the script. We need to change the narrative. We need to make the stories new, make them our own. And if we don't do that, if you don't have that creative reflex, the, what you can always do is talk about it and say, why did it end that way? That's just wrong. Or how dare those children eat the house of this woman who is living out in the woods? I mean, she needs a roof over her head. I'm finding that when I read fairy tales to children, now that's sort of my approach, that we don't necessarily rewrite the story, but we use the story as a springboard to talk about other possibilities. And then it creates this wonderful context zone between adults and children. It's notoriously difficult to get children to talk about their feelings. You know, you say, how was school today? Okay. (laughs) So you get these one word answers, but tell them a story. And once they're in the safe space of once upon a time, they'll not only start talking, but they ask questions. They bombard you with questions. And that's what I love about these stories is that Somehow, I think that we're almost hardwired to not just tell the stories, but also to react to them, to respond, uh, to give our opinions and views, and then to find not necessarily the right lesson, but something in the story that is important for us, that means something to us, and that helps us navigate the real world. And that nugget, that dense golden golden nugget of wisdom that we take out of fairy tales, I think really changes over over time. So they're, they're not static, are they? They're kind of living, breathing <laughs> stories that can change exactly. and adapt. Yeah. Yeah, that's fascinating. Oh, I, I've got so many things I want to <laughs> ask. Um, so just by kind of complete chance happenstance we started the the very first story we ever did was hands in luck um just because it happened to be the first one in the book that i had at the time and i was delighted when i read that you singled that story out as the exception to the rule of the standard fairy tale uh, structure so i just wondered if you if you could kind of explain to our listeners what is a fairy tale, essentially, if that's not too big a question? And, and perhaps why, how is, does Hands in Luck, how is that the exception to the rule? Uh, it's been a while since I've looked at Hans in Gluck. Uh, and as I recall, does he end up with his mother? <laughs> yes. Yeah, so he, yeah. 
Adam, do you remember that one? Oh, it was great. Yeah, a series of, I would say, unsuccessful trades resulting in him ending up home with nothing but, but his but his mum, yeah. Yes, right. right. I, it reminds me of the, the story about the sausages, the couple that wishes for these different things once the sausage ends up on the nose. And the only <laughs> way that they can undo things is by using their last remaining wish. And so they're right back where they were before. Uh, but fairy tales in general, I mean, I think the important thing is they have this high coefficient of weirdness which comes from the magic in them. And it's a magic that we take for granted. Of course, you know, there's a witch there. The wolf can talk. We don't challenge that. We accept the supernatural in these stories. It's part of what my students call the ontological grounding of the story. There's a willing suspension of disbelief. And so anything can happen. And then the fairy tale also has in it the notion of transformation, of change, that hope that I talked about earlier. Uh, that is, we are capable of changing. We can metamorphose. And I would take that back almost to, you know, Ovid, who wrote, you know, this wonderful book about myths, Greek myths, metamorphoses, change, the way that, you know, life is fluid, we're constantly adapting. You know, I mean, think of today, we're living through a pandemic. And what are we doing? We're adapting to the circumstance. Sometimes I think it's astonishing to me that I'm willing to sit in my house. So that that idea that, you know, things can change, and also that you have to cooperate in order to, I I love the cooperation between humans and animals. One could read these stories in ecological terms, environmental terms. Uh, I, I love these recent studies that have come out on disability studies and fairy tales. So yes, I would say those are the two features of fairy tales, magic, metamorphosis, I could go on. I always give my students about 10 M's, metamorphic, migratory, mythical, and so on. You know, they belong to the great cauldron of story. So they're right there with myths, nursery rhymes, with legends. I love the way Ursula Le Guin talks about genre busting. And a writer like Neil Gaiman tells us, you know, genre is totally unimportant to me. I can mix things up. We have this beautiful... Tolkien's cauldron of story that we can dip into to refresh ourselves, renew ourselves, and re-energize ourselves in ways. I f- I feel like Adam might have frozen. I c- I, he's not moving. He might not be here anymore. Oh, oh, he does look frozen. Uh, yeah, Adam seems to have gone. We've we, we've only got um two final questions for you. Firstly, what's your personal Favorite fairy tale, if that's not too hard to narrow down, in general or or the Grimm? I rethink it every day. But I used to say Hansel and Gretel because I love the way that the story was about sibling solidarity Mm -hmm. and that the two Mm -hmm. of them managed to get through. Then recently, I started reading Hansel and Gretel to my five-year-old granddaughter. And Mm -hmm. I thought, no, I can't possibly (laughs) read this story. This old woman in the woods who was planning to cook the children for dinner. So I think I'm taking it off my list of favorites. Uh, But for a while, I was obsessed with the Bluebeard story. And then, of course, you know, I spent a couple of years on Snow White. I think what I would say, though, is that 
I will always love the grim repertoire the most. Somehow, as much as, you know, we can find a great deal to criticize and to slam in that collection of stories, is something so brilliant about the way that they captured, you know, the voice of the past. And I won't say peasants because, you know, they had many different informants, but they captured the voice of the past. And then also the range of stories in that collection. So, yes, I, I guess I would just say the Grimm's. Oh, there's Arden. He's back. <laughs> I'm, I'm so sorry. I'm frozen. Yeah. <laughs> 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 That's all right. Um, I, we've only got one more question for you, Adam. I, I can leave that one to you, I guess. Right. Yes. Sure. Um, yeah. Sorry about that. Uh, technical difficulties, but obviously, on the podcast, we are working our way through the collection of the Brothers Grimm, but we're making good progress. So, at some point, we are going to finish that. So, after the Brothers Grimm, what would you recommend we read next? Great question. I think. The next step would actually be Perrault. First of all, there are only a dozen stories in that collection, so you'll be able to tear right through that. But it'll be an interesting comparison set with what you've been doing in the Grimm's. And then maybe go to some modern rewrites, some new versions of the story. And I would say start with Anne Sexton, that wonderful volume of poetry called Transformations, where she takes the Grimm's tales and turns them into pop culture poems. And and then Angela Carter, of course. Do you know the collection? Um, I've got both of those books, actually, in the bookshelf. They're fantastic. And I think just sort of seeing how these stories have been been recycled, uh, reimagined, We often think we've discarded these stories, but in fact, you know, if you look at Hollywood films, they're full of fairy tale tropes. I recently worked with, do you know the film Ex Machina? Yeah. Full of bluebeard tropes. Um, And then Quentin Tarantino. I mean, who would think that Quentin Tarantino is interested in fairy tales, but Django Unchained is full of Sleeping Beauty references. There's the Cinderella reference in, what is the one about um, the Nazi? Uh, uh, Inglorious Bastards. Bastards. Yeah. Thank you, yes. And, um, and then more recently, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, mm-hmm. which also has lots of interesting fairy tale stuff going on in it. You know, we talked earlier about the migration of the stories into the culture of childhood, but they're alive and well in adult entertainments, for sure. Fantastic. Thank you so much, Maria. Thank you. Yeah, thank, thank you so you much for your time. And I have to ask, actually, do the book with the, the German tales in Gothic script that you found as a child, do you still have it? I do. Do you want to see it? Oh, I'd love to. Absolutely. That would be amazing. Hold on a sec. <laughs> thank you. So here it is. And you can see, at a certain point, I got some tape because <laughs> it was falling apart. But here is the, the frontispiece piece is Grimm, Kindermarken, yeah, Snow White in her in her glass coffin. Amazing. Oh gosh, you know, I I realize now I've misremembered it. I thought it was Gothic script, but it's not. It's just, <laughs> can you see that? Yeah, yeah. Oh yeah. And this was published in. 19, 1913. That's incredible. 
It is, yeah. I'm so glad I still have it. Yeah, that's wonderful. It's beautiful. Was it your family's book? Well, it was in a, you know, we immigrated to the United States in the 50s and uh, were sponsored by a church. They gave us a house to live in. And the house was full of the attic was, you know, it was just magical. It was exactly what what you want as a child, full of all of these strange objects. Uh, I remember there was a helmet, a German helmet from World War II. Uh, and then this book was up there in the attic as well, along with trunks and everything you could imagine. Yeah. Oh, that's amazing. Yeah, no, we, we yeah, we, lo- we love analyzing the stories, but um, we definitely find the stories really just kind of come alive when you read them out loud mm-hmm. rather than just kind of dead on the page. They just really leap into life. And Definitely. Yeah, that's the most fun, really. It's just reading the stories. Yeah, <laughs> the and part. the fact that I pick them based on title alone, I don't know anything about them apart from the really famous ones. And, you know, we sit down to record and Matt starts to... Re- and I have no idea where this story is going to go. Oh, fascinating. Yeah. That's great. You know, that's interesting because when I translate it, I did it that way too. I decided I was not going to read the whole story. I just translated as I went along. And, you know, and I knew the stories, but I didn't know all the details. So mm. it was always something of a shocker to get to the to get deep into the story and then to the end. Sure. Cool. Yeah. All right. Thank you so much. All yeah, right. Good thank luck you. with so everything. Fun. I can't wait to, I'll start following you. And I can listen in the car and when I'm gardening and walking around okay. which is about all we can do in this time <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so there you have it that's our interview with uh, Maria Tatar. Thank you so much uh, to Maria. We really appreciate her taking yeah. the time to talk to us. Yeah, really grateful. And very insightful. I mean, it. I feel like it elevated the podcast. <laughs> <laughs> yes. <laughs> yes, definitely. It was really interesting just to get, yeah, educated answers to yeah. questions w- that have been thrown up on our journey by the stories i think Mm -hmm. it was really really nice to hear and quite refreshing as well to hear that perspective from someone at the very top of of that of the game definitely but also i would say that it was a credit to you matt if i can say that right now on the podcast that some of the things that she said i was thinking i remember matt saying that or something to that effect so that's quite that's got to be quite gratifying that you know, a Harvard scholar who's been studying fairy tales for decades uh, is yeah. basically confirming what what you've said to me already. So that was quite interesting. Yeah, thank you. <laughs> That's, that is nice to hear. As I said in the interview, there isn't much between just reading the story or reading some someone's just mm-hmm. blog that they wrote about it or listening to us, I guess, and academia there's not much in between so in uh, mm-hmm. often i do have to go there and try and wrap my head around it so um yeah so that's yeah that's why i've probably mentioned that kind of stuff and then that's why it's nice to hear from maria someone yeah. who actually knows properly about that <laughs> stuff definitely we were both very nervous yeah. i think i think that came across 
we've literally just we've just finished the interview and uh, yeah. I don't know how it sounds but goodness me we were both very very nervous there yeah so apologies if we're very quiet and you don't hear much of us <laughs> we were both extremely nervous yeah. um but but i think it went well yeah many thanks to maria lots of interesting uh and thoughtful and insightful answers so yeah thanks a lot fantastic well that was a lovely little change, wasn't it? It was something a bit different. regular schedule, a little <laughs> bit different. An extra grim. We haven't had one of those for a while. No, it has been a while. I don't, I don't know uh, if it made it into the final edit, but there was a little bit of talk about Thousand Thurs there, which I feel like Maria uh, realised that, you know, we don't know anything about it and very deftly steer the conversation away. Yeah. So that, that's, that'll be our next episode. Can't wait. Thousand Thurs. Yeah, we hope you enjoyed that. And thank you to Maria again. And we will see you next time for Thousand Furs. Can't wait. See you then. Bye. Bye. If you'd like to support the podcast, please head over to patreon.com slash grimreading to find out how and also see the range of benefits available as a thank you from us. You can, of course, email us at grimreadingpodcast at gmail.com. We're on Twitter, at GreenReadingPod, and we're also on Instagram and Facebook, at GreenReading. You can find us on Podbean, podbean.com slash GreenReading, and we also have a website, grimreading.wordpress.com. Keep it grim.